welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer. I am Tara Setmayer, and I am back on the East Coast in the D.C. area. Uh, Last week I was in Los Angeles where I recorded um, on location at Politicon, which was pretty cool. But uh, this week I'm back, and man, what a week it's been. Feels like an eternity ago. A week ago at this time, I was in 85 degrees and sunny in L.A. on the West Coast. And so much has happened since then. I come back and it's like 40 degrees here in the D.C. area. I'm freezing my ass off. Got the heat on the house. My mums are like dying because it's cold. (laughs) But um, a lot has happened in the last week. And um, usually when I start my show, I quote Orwell. And what do I say? I say in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And it looks like the president, right-wing media, they are once again putting out the narrative that the press is the enemy of the people in light of some pretty horrific actions that have taken place in the last couple of days. And we all know unless you've been living under a rock, you know what happened last week. We had a mail bomber, attempt, alleged, alleged mail bomber, sending 14-plus incendiary devices through the mail to various critics of President Trump. CNN being one of them. Yesterday, actually, even though they caught the guy, more were found um, at the CNN facility in Atlanta, But two ex-presidents, Clinton and Obama, Brennan, a bunch of others. I mean, uh, Eric Holder, the the list was long. A lot of people, Maxine Waters, the list was long. But what they all had, had in common was that they were all critics of the president. So this guy, Cesar Sayoc, decided that he was going to send a message, I guess, before I get to that, though, there's there's just so much going on, my God. Before I get into all that, I was actually on a flight coming back from L.A. when I watched a movie for two hours. It's like a five-hour flight. I watched a movie, and then I said, you know what? It's a Wednesday. Let me sign on Wi-Fi on the plane and see what's going on. And that's when I saw all the alerts. CNN was evacuated while live on air in New York. It was uh it was pretty unnerving just watching that all unfold. My own husband who I've mentioned is a federal law enforcement agent was um let's just say that he was in the middle of some of this. And I didn't know that till I got home. But I want to say thank you to all the law enforcement officers who did an amazing job, to the postal workers who also were in harm's way for the great job that our FBI and, and, and partner organizations, law enforcement organizations, to catch that bastard on Friday morning really quickly. This was like, like 72 hours after the bomb started showing up. Kudos to them. You know, it makes you think when the president criticizes our law enforcement officers and, you know, talks about um, how the FBI is corrupt and how horrible our intel community is. Yeah, okay, until they until they, they do something great, which is most of the time, not saying there aren't things wrong, but most of the time, 
they are fantastic. We have the best intelligence, best law enforcement in the world. And that was on display last week. So thank you. I thank you for what you do. But um, yeah, the, the, that, that whole thing, we had that, then we had this horrific massacre on Saturday at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Just sending my prayers and support to our Jewish brothers and sisters and my su- reiterate my support for them, for the Jewish people in this country. Should this, this level of increased anti-Semitic behavior is unacceptable in this country. One of the 11 who perished was a Holocaust survivor and died at the hands of an anti-Semite evil sicko on American soil. That is hard to fathom in 2018. But that's what happened. And the president of the United States, although he had uh, some nice written statements about condemning what happened, and that's wonderful. But there's a difference between teleprompter Trump and Twitter Trump, which we all know. I'm sorry, it's a little difficult for me to give the president of the United States credit for reading the words other people wrote for him and then he turns around when he's not on a leash and on, and on Twitter and he tweets what he really feels by blaming everybody else, taking zero spon- responsibility for the tone that he has set. Zero. Instead, he's doubling down that the media is the enemy of the people. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just, I'm so infuriated I'm saddened, I'm infuriated, I'm just, but I'm also undeterred. There was a direct attack on our free press and our democracy last week with that male bomber. Could you imagine if even one of those devices had gone off, what that would have, what that would have done? And um, by the way, yes, he was a Trump supporter. An insane Trump supporter riding around in a van with all kinds of vile, disgusting things plastered on it from anti-Semitic things to racial, racial things to lynching KKK stuff and a CNN suck sticker. Hmm. I wonder what encouraged him to, to, to do that. Video footage of him at a Trump rally or two with a CNN suck sign. Hmm. Who, what rallies? Do you hear that all the time? Oh, Trump rallies. Don't tell me that Trump and and what he does and what happens at these rallies and what he says and that tone that he sets hasn't had an influence. Bullshit. Of course it does. But no, nobody wants to, no, no, no. It's, It's our fault. It's the media's fault because we're critical of the president. Sarah Sanders, who is another despicable liar, was at the, you did a press briefing yesterday, the first time in three weeks, and started off with a very heartfelt statement condemning what happened in Pittsburgh, and then ended the press conference once again with her righteous indignation about how horrible the media is. So it's our fault? We brought it on ourselves? I mean, I just can't with these people. It's so disingenuous. But as I talk about that also, Stay tuned because um, I have Paul Begala on the show this week. Paul Begala, 
well-known Democrat consultant, uh, campaign extraordinaire. He he was he rose to prominence with his work with James Carville on the Bill Clinton presidential campaign in 1992, and over the years. He served with the, with the president and everything, and he's a CNN colleague of mine, and I got to know him uh, during our time, especially during the election. And even though we're on opposite sides of the political fence, we are friends, and um, I appreciate his institutional knowledge, and he's actually quite funny. <laughs> he has a really great one-liner, so he joins me for the interview later, so stay tuned for that. We talk a little midterms and stuff. But I wanted to get this stuff off my, off my chest first because I, I couldn't, it would be remiss, I would be, it would be remiss of me not to address this, what happened in the last couple of days. Let me talk about, I want to talk about what happened with the synagogue thing first, and then I'll get back to this mail bomber. So no one in this country should feel unsafe in a place of worship. That is one of the most cowardly acts. We saw that happen with Dylan Roof in South Carolina, where he gunned down those, those folks in a black church, driven by hatred, pure, it's pure evil, pure evil. And Donald Trump comes out and says, oh, well, you know, he condemns it. Yeah, okay. But he said, what does he say? Oh, well, if there was someone, an armed guard there. You know what? I'm as pro-Second Amendment as they come. But that's not the answer to this, okay? An armed guard, that's, no, no. That's not the answer. And Pennsylvania isn't exactly like New Jersey where it's really hard to get a weapon. But that's not the point. People should not have to go into a place of worship with a with a with their service weapon or their or their personal weapon on them because they're afraid that some neo-nazi crazy person is going to come in and gun them down that's just not the appropriate answer four cops were also shot defending that synagogue so there were men's men with guns there who responded they're recovering and again god bless them but hearts and prayers I'm I'm so saddened by what happened in in Pittsburgh. But I want to bring something up about the 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 perpetrator, the shooter, this Robert Bowers. What motivated him? Well, thanks to social media today, you can go back and read it. You can go back and look. They post all kinds of stuff these wackadoodles. And he was on some social media site called Gab, which I will admit I had not really heard of, but apparently it was like this breeding ground kind of like 4chan and some of these other alternative sites where these white supremacists and crazy people congregate. I I don't know if it started off that way, but it got hijacked by those people. And he posted all over there about how he hated Jewish people and how he was going to kill them. And he posted a couple minutes before he went in and he talked about the caravan right? This caravan of a couple thousand migrants from Central America that are slowly making their way up north that pose no direct threat to the United States right now, okay? They don't. They're not going to invade our country. They're not going to overrun us. But that's the language that's been coming out of the president and his acolytes about this caravan. That's what's been coming out of Fox News, irresponsibly reporting this in ways, covering this as if this is imminent, you know how long it takes to walk 2,000 miles or however how far away they are? This is not imminent. But it's a great wedge issue. I brought it up last week. It's a great wedge issue. I mean, I'm a border hawk. I don't want to see these people coming in in droves like this illegally. No, I don't. And there's a whole nother, that's a whole different conversation. But you don't dehumanize people. These are human beings 
just like you and I, okay? So whether we agree with why they're coming here or not or think they belong here or not, when you start dehumanizing people, this is what happens. You embolden these bastards who want to just who, who kill indiscriminately because you've dehumanized people. I have no tolerance for that. The Republican Party used to not have tolerance for that either. But I don't know what the hell happened. It's been infected with this, this cancer that comes out of Trump's mouth. And you know, he had an opportunity. He really did. Trump had an opportunity to unequivocally bring people together. I mean, after the synagogue massacre, he did a freaking political rally. Now, I get it. You don't want to stop your life. You don't want to be, you know, terrorists want you to change what you do or, you know, instill fear. So I understand that. But if you're going to do the rally, then it's what you do with it when you're at that rally, when you have that platform. That's what matters. You know what Ronald Reagan did? In 1981, I think it was. And I, and I love Ronald Reagan. Some of you listening may not, but I admire Ronald Reagan. And a lot of people did. And he always, he was the great communicator for a reason. And in 1981, I'm sorry, he was at the NAACP convention, back when Republicans used to actually engage with African Americans, honestly. And three months earlier, a black man in, in Alabama named Michael Donald was lynched. And three KKK members were eventually convicted for it. But I just want you, I don't, I'm going to play for you what Ronald Reagan said. Now, if this is what Donald Trump said, if this is what Donald Trump had said, I would have given him kudos. But take a listen. Recently, in some places in the nation, there's been a disturbing reoccurrence of bigotry and violence. If I may, from the platform of this organization, known for its tolerance, I would like to address a few remarks to those groups who still adhere to senseless racism and religious prejudice. To those individuals who persist in such hateful behavior, if I were speaking to them instead of to you, I would say to them, you are the ones who are out of step with our society. You are the ones who willfully violate the meaning of the dream that is America. And this country, because of what it stands for, will not stand for your conduct. Now that's the way a president of the United States should address hateful racism, anti-Semitic bigotry. Unequivocal, without question, clear, concise condemnation. He didn't blame the media. He didn't whine and complain and play the victim. No, he rose to the occasion because that's what a president's supposed to do. But that's not what Donald Trump did. No, it's not. He's doubled and tripled down on blaming the media, e tweeting that we are the enemy of the people. That is just so inappropriate. And, you know, he won't take any responsibility, none, they, they, that there's claiming there's no correlation between what's happened with him. I mean, with words that have come out of his mouth and what he said at rallies and, and what and, and the environment he's fomented and what these these evil people have decided to now carry out into action. I want to bring something up. So like I said, this Robert Bowers, the, the perpetrator in the synagogue massacre, he's a self-proclaimed Nazi, hates Jews, and, and he, 
he said that the caravan that was one of the you know one of the things and I don't want I'm gonna you know he yelled out I'm gonna kill Jews when he was shooting according to reports he also talks about the caravan about people coming in and invading the country and killing his people where do you think he got that language from that comes right out of the president's mouth and on Fox freaking news all damn day it's especially at night on their opinion shows where is their responsibility don't sit here and tell me that Donald Trump and his presidency and his camp back to his candidacy have not emboldened these people. Exhibit A. Back in July, there was an article in the Washington Post. It was a, a long form article that I was horrified by when I read it. It was on July 28th, 2018, how white supremacists split a quiet Rust Belt town in Pennsylvania. I was like, there's like neo-Nazi groups in Pennsylvania? Yeah, apparently, yes. In a place called Ulysses, Pennsylvania. It's Potter County. I think that's in like north central Pennsylvania somewhere. Apologize to my folks in Pennsylvania. I don't know exactly where that is. Potter County. And they profile this enclave there that's had this like enclave of, of neo-Nazi groups for years, decades. And they were pretty dormant for a while. But guess what? They're back pretty active. Why? Since when? Well, I will tell you when. In the article, it says two area neo-Nazi groups, the National Socialist Movement and the Aryan Strike Force, held a white unity meeting in Ulysses to discuss their response to Trump's election and plan joint action. One organizer would not say when the group said last met, simply saying, quote, it's just a good time now. Quote, I can tell you with certainty that since November 2016, activity has doubled, whether it's feet on the street or money orders or people helping out, said Daniel Burnside, 43, a woodcarver who owns the Nazi-themed home and directs the state chapter of the National Socialist Movement, a far-right group that was founded in Detroit in the 1970s. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks extremist groups, the NSM was among the groups taking part in, in the violent August 2017 rally in defense of Confederate statues in Charlottesville. He said, we have meetings every 30 days. There's much more collaboration. Now, he also said that he does not see Trump as a leader of this movement, but, but as a politician who's amplified long-standing white nationalist views at the right time. He said, personally, quote, I don't know about Trump. You won't necessarily see MAGA hats at our meetings. We're anti-Semitic. Something's a bit off about Trump with the Jews. Oh, maybe because his daughter and son-in-law are Jewish. But that said, we're strategically aligned. Now listen to this. He said, when Trump says something that aligns with us, like close the borders, build the wall, look after your own, that's good. We've been saying this for 25 years, but he has made it mainstream. He has made it mainstream. Trump has made this ilk main freaking stream. That is indisputable. He didn't denounce David Duke right away. He hemmed and hawed. Oh man, I don't know him. I don't know what he's talking about. Blah, blah, blah. What? He was full of shit then. He knew who the hell David Duke was. He just didn't want to piss off people in his base. Who knows why? I don't know. I mean, I think that Trump is a bigot. I've said so before. 
But the point is that just like what Andrew Gillum, the, the Democratic governor, gubernatorial candidate in Florida said to Ron DeSantis during the debate, well, the racists think you're racist. So whether you are or not, the people who are think you are. They think you're aligned with them. That is a problem. How is it that Trump people don't see this? You know what? Well, the Trump cultists are never going to see it. How is it that what, who used to be sane Republicans and elected officials, how is, how is it that they don't see this? I blame them. And this whole idea, Trump had the audacity last week before these tragedies occurred. He went out there at one of his freaking rallies and talked about how he's a proud nationalist. He left out the white part, but he doubled down. He, he, and he knew what he was saying. He said, oh, we're not supposed to say this word. But I'm a proud nationalist. I love my country. Blah, blah, blah. Buddy, that's not what nationalism is. And he knows it. He knows it. George Orwell, who I like to quote often because was he prescient? Orwell in 1945 wrote an essay called Notes on Nationalism. And if you're into that kind of stuff, I suggest you go Google it and read it. It's scary how apropos it is for what's going on today, really. You know, 1945, we're looking at, you know, after World War II and what happened with the Nazis. That's usually what we associate nationalism with, right? And some people will say, you know, they'll argue, oh, it's not always Nazis and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, that's what we associate it with, which is why nationalism is not a great word. Now, Orwell said in the notes on nationalism, he said nationalism is not patriotism. Yep. He said, while nationalism can unite people, it must be noted that it unites people against other people. Yep. Isn't that what we see going on now? He said nationalism is inseparable from the desire for power. The abiding purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and prestige for the nation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now a patriot says, I love my country, right? That's patriotism. It's an affection for one's country and your willingness to defend it in simple, simplistic terms. Is what Trump peddling patriotism? No, I would say not. There's a certain amount of superior, you know, national identity and belief that one's nation or government is superior or group. This is dangerous stuff, folks. Dangerous stuff. Trump will never take responsibility for it. He knows he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's despicable. And we have to keep calling it out for what it is. We have to. We cannot normalize any of this. Our country I feel like it's on the brink, man. Like I I don't want to always sound so fatalistic. Like I'm actually a really upbeat person. <laughs> but the last couple weeks, man, it's been hard. The last home stretch of these midterms I mean I predicted the midterms were going to be nuts I didn't think blood was going to be shed during midterms honestly it's 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 tough then we go on to this mail bomber alleged mail bomber 
Now there's no, oh, just some, just another point for people who are Trump supporters. I don't think you probably listen to me, but if you do, yes, the, the, the white nationalist anti-Semite who killed those people in Pittsburgh said that he didn't like Trump. Yeah. Well, he didn't like Trump because Trump wasn't Nazi enough. Okay. He wasn't anti-Semitic enough. Just like I read from that article in the Washington post, they said they think that he's got an issue with Jews. Yeah. Well, his daughter and his son-in-law are Jewish, but he aligns with us on certain issues. And so, okay. So I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me that the caravan talk and what Trump has done and what he keeps repeating, making shit up about who's in the caravan, who isn't without proof, sending our troops down there again, just for window dressing. What are 5,000 more troops going to do? They're not there. They, they cannot enforce like domestic law. They're just going to be there in an advisory capacity. It's all window dressing, folks. It's all window dressing. We already sent the National Guard. So that's not the answer either. It's, is, it the, is it a deterrent? I don't, I mean, like I said, that's another discussion. I, I'm going to have an immigration discussion one of these weeks. Just not now. There's too many other things happening that I have to talk about. So I want to talk about this mail bomber. Now, this guy, what a loser loon. I, you know, I receive a lot of really nasty, threatening, harassing messages on, on Twitter from, from Trump people. Um, I've mentioned this before during the election, the FBI got involved with some of the threats that were levied against me and you know, whatever. Obviously I'm undeterred and I will remain undeterred. And I stand by my media colleagues who also are threatened on a daily basis some travel with security. I've seen it myself. I mean, we live in an age now where where journalists, reporters have to travel with security. You gotta be freaking kidding me. It's, it's insane. But anyway, this guy was a, was a huge Trump supporter. He was at rallies. He had Trump stuff all over this van. He lived in some van. He was a pizza delivery guy. I saw a fascinating report on CNN where this, with the pizza place owner where he worked yeah you know we used to make him park his van behind the back and I'm like what oh but he was a good employee are you kidding she knew the guy's views she said he talked terribly about minorities about you know Jews about Democrats about you know but he was a good employee good lord how hard up are you for employees in South Florida for a pizza delivery guy this is who you employ and he was driving that van around to deliver pizzas. Imagine that pulls up at your, to your house. Holy shit, what do you do? What do you do? But the part that, that bothered me the most about this is that so many people just not acknowledging where Trump has some influence in this. Did he send the bombs? Did he make the guy send the bombs? No, he didn't has his tone and repeated attacks on the media and repeated attacks on his political opponents set a to- set a tone yeah it has and he was still attacking people i'm not a fan of maxine waters for a number of reasons but i will damn sure defend against trying to kill her i'm not a fan of president obama i'm not a fan of the clintons we shouldn't be sending mail bombs intended to assassinate them and then turn around and insult the same people who were just targeted, which is what Trump did at his rally. 
still calling her low IQ Maxine. Yes, Maxine Waters said some things about we should confront people where they are and harass them. I don't agree with that. I don't. Two wrongs don't make a right, though. We're not supposed to become what we despise. Ever. Yet there's this rationalization by Trump supporters. Well, it's the media's fault. I'm so sick of that. You know, I watched the, uh, the movie The Post. And it, uh, I've seen it like three times now. I saw it in the movies. And then I saw it um, on a plane coming back from California, actually. Or going to Cali last week. I just so happened to watch it again. Because I appreciate the, the banter. And plus it's historic. You know, the, pe- the, post, the, the movie is about the Pentagon Papers. And what happened in the 1970s when the study, the RAND study, was uh, leaked about basically our government knew that we couldn't win in Vietnam and we sent our guys over there to die anyway in vain. Awful. And everyone knows that Nixon hated the media also. If you look at a lot of Trump's language, it's similar to, to Nixon's language when he was in office. Roger Stone who's another despicable person, was a big Nixon guy. Roger Stone's close to Trump. So just that little connection there. So it's no surprise that Trump has decided to go after the media and and try to discredit them. It's also what authoritarians do, because what's the role of the free press? The role of the press is to hold our government officials accountable. And... What, what, what's the first thing? The Nazis did the same thing. Hitler did the same thing. He tried to take out the, 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 the press because that informs the people. The role of the press is to inform the people, right? The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. That's what Justice Hugo Black said in, in the Supreme Court case that the Pentagon Papers ended up cre- um, creating, causing, because the New York Times got the story first about the Pentagon Papers, and of course, Nixon administration freaked out. They tried to get an injunction. They did. Then the Washington Post got access to the Pentagon Papers, and they were supposed to, they wanted to publish. It was a big thing. What should they publish? Should they not? Nixon tried to use the full weight of the government to stop them from doing it, and they lost. And it's one of the most landmark, significant cases for press freedom in the history of this country. And in that case, Justice Hugo Black, he said this. He said, in the First Amendment, the Founding Fathers gave the free press the protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. The press was protected so that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. Only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. Now, that case was about revealing government secrets. It was it against the national security interests of the U.S., revealing what happened with, with Vietnam and what went on. But, that was, but it was in the past, though. It wasn't happening right then, that study. But... The point of that is reiterating the right of the free press and the role. It's not to be a lapdog to the president of the United States. It's not to make the president, you know, feel good about himself like Fox News does. Okay, Fox News jerks the president off every single day. It is political masturbation on that channel. 
That's right, I said it. That's what that is. That's not the role of a free press. They're supposed to hold people accountable. We do not go out there and deliberately lie. That's not what we do. That's not what responsible journalists do. Do we get it wrong sometimes? Yes. Are we the enemy of the people? No. Are we generating fake news on purpose? No. Some right-wing sites are. Some left-wing sites are. The fringes do that. Mainstream media does not. You can argue if there's an agenda, maybe, you know, a point of view from which you tell the stories. But we are not, under any circumstances, the enemy of the people of this country. And shame on the president of the United States for continuing to repeat that. Because when you do that, then whack jobs like this guy in Florida riding around in a van with all these sick pictures and targets on political opponents of the president with signs that say CNN suck and everything else, decide to take action into their own hands. Hmm. So I don't want to hear it. You know, they, it was so, it was Fox News, Lou Dobbs on Fox News sent out a tweet in the middle of this before they caught the guy insinuating that they were fake. Pe- people, the bombs, believe me, they weren't fake. The cavalry was called in when those bombs were discovered. ATF, Secret Service, FBI, postal inspectors. I mean, it was no joke. They were explosive devices, poorly constructed, perhaps. That's why they didn't go off. But they were still treated as real destructive devices. I saw some of the official reports. So shame on someone who's on a major news channel, Fox News Business, even implying this, this conspiracy conspiracy theory bullshit feeding the sickness of some of these people who who thrive off of this nonsense Trump himself put out a tweet the morning that they caught this guy before they caught him putting bombs in quotes as if we're making this up people were implying that Democrats were using this they were sending bombs themselves to try to uh, deter Republicans you know tamp down their enthusiasm what what kind of sick shit is this? It's, it's, it's hard to imagine. It's really mind-blowing. It is. But his reaction is, oh, well, it's a false flag. His supporters, oh, maybe. Could be a false flag operation. What? That's Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. You know, Pizzagate. Hillary Clinton is running a kid's sex ring through a pizza place. Remember that? And some whack job took a, took, took a semi-automatic rifle and shot up the, a pizza place in Washington, D.C. looking for kids that were in a sex ring there. This is, don't, words matter. Words matter, especially when they're coming out of the mouth of the president of the United States with the bully pulpit, with the largest platform most reach, biggest, most responsible platform in the world. You keep repeating things that are wrong, inaccurate. What are we up to over 6,000 lies or inaccuracies coming out of Trump's mouth already? And people, you give people an excuse. You know, my husband and I were talking about some of this before. We were talking about people who we've known for a long time. And now like when you hear them rationalizing Trump's behavior, it makes both of us kind of pause. Because at some point you have to decide, is the integrity of this country less important than your tax cuts or your Supreme Court justice 
just the, the very selfish things you want now? What are we doing to ourselves? Who are we as a people that we are rationalizing this? So you rationalize what Trump does. You make excuses for it. Well, I don't like what he says or how he says it, but look at what he does. Really? Well, what, where do you draw the line with that? Where do you draw the line with that? Drug dealers are horrible people. They're killing thousands of people. But guess what? There's some drug dealers that take care of folks in their community. They pay the rents for people, buy them turkeys at, at Thanksgiving. They give, you know, buy sneakers for kids in the neighborhood. Well, so what? So what if they kill all kinds of people with their poison? They're nice. They're good to our neighborhood. What kind of rationalization is that? It's like about where we are with Trump. So what kind of people are these that continue to rationalize this? It tells you something about their character. And people now, they've swung the other way. They say, well, Obama's, you know, this division, Obama divided us and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, we can have discussions about things that Obama said during his presidency or things that were, you know, he went at bitter clingers and insulted people of faith and gun owners and things like that. Okay. But not, nothing like this. So people were insulted. They internalized it. And here comes Trump. Oh, no, I speak for you. Like a cult leader. I'm the one who speaks for you. I understand how you feel. I'm your voice. And has given license to people who might have harbored some of these bigoted feelings or some of these, you know, these negative feelings and, and, and cultivated them and given them a license to say it's okay now. Look at the president of the United States. Look what he says. Look how he acts. Would you want your kid acting like that? Could you imagine? I don't know. Some of these people might say yes. What does that say about them? I'm fired up about this, if you haven't noticed, because I just, it just concerns me that the, that the pendulum has swung so far the other way and that people are becoming what they claim to despise. And we have to be better. We have to do better. And I'll tell you right now, I stand in solidarity with my colleagues in the media. We will not be deterred. We will not be silenced. We will not be deterred. Anderson Cooper said we will still be here despite what kind of anything, that, terrorism that you try to instill fear on us. You are not going to silence us. We will still be here to, today, tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that. That's right. Amen, Anderson. And Ida B. Wells, who was a, who was a tough cookie, she was a, a a black woman back in the 18 end of the 1800s she was a republican back when black folks were republicans she was an abolitionist she was a journalist and she was a, she fought for civil rights and women's rights she was a tough chick she didn't take any shit from anybody and she famously said the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them that's what I try to do every day that's what my colleagues in the media try to do and no bout of terrorism of intimidation coming whether it was coming from domestic terrorisms de terrorists or coming from the podium in the Oval Office in the White House in the press room in the White House or anywhere else or Fox News or Breitbart or anywhere else no amount of intimidation will stop me I can speak for myself, at least, 
from turning the light of truth upon them. That's why we do what we do, and that's why I do what I do, especially here on Honestly Speaking. On that note, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk just briefly about the midterms because uh, my guest, Paul Bagala, we're going to talk a little bit about the midterms. But I just think um, a week from now will be voting day, midterm day, November 6th. Hopefully everybody's already registered. If you haven't started to early vote already, go out there and early vote. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot on the line. And I just think that in order for us to have some balance and course correct, I've said it before, is for Republicans to lose the House. Not so much the Senate, but the House for sure. I'm actually rooting for it. I it it still makes still sounds weird for me to say as a as a conservative, but I just don't know what else the answer is in order to hold folks accountable. In politics, you don't change unless you lose. And I'm I'm it just dismays me to see how quiet and passive and enabling elected Republicans have been. And I talked to Paul in a little bit about who I'm going to vote for in November. (laughs) Stay tuned um, here in Virginia and why. But, you know, Trump's approval rating is already down 4% from last week, according to Gallup. It was up around 44%. I mean, we've got a great economy, right? He should be over 50%, but he's his own worst enemy because he acts like an ass and People are turned off. He could not have handled the situation worse, just like Charlottesville. And that reminds people why we're concerned about him and why people are, you know, it's just not a good example. It reminds especially suburban voters, women, that we, you know, we don't don't want these people in power. He should be down to 40%. I mean, the... The Democrats were starting to lose momentum a little bit. Well, now, now you've just encouraged them. For from the Republican point of view, what I, I'm I know Republican consultant friends of mine who are like, Jesus, this guy, we can't. I mean, what? Somebody, please, just like tie him up, put him somewhere until after the midterms. <laughs> no, he's coming out and still doing these rallies, tweeting and and saying crazy shit. And then back to helping the Democrats. But there's, I read an interesting article, and I bring this up with Paul Bagala, um, by Daniel Dale. And he talks about the Rust Belt voters who were Democrats but couldn't stand Hillary Clinton that ended up voting for Trump in 2016, especially some women. And now they've soured on Trump, regret their vote for him, but they don't hold the same animosity toward their incumbent Democrats. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, they're not holding the fact that they didn't like Hillary against Casey or against their incumbent officials there. So just because they were Trump supporters in 2016 doesn't mean that they're going to vote Republican for the congressional races, which I thought was a very fascinating dynamic. He, he looked at Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Those are the really the three states that put Trump over, that 
have normally been democratic firewalls the blue wave firewall and i thought that was just fascinating so we need to pay attention to that see how that affects 2020 i don't know turnout's the key though folks in midterm elections turnout is the key i also ask uh paul you'll hear how he feels about hillary (laughs) is she hurting or helping personally i think she needs to go back on vacation go back for walks in the woods democrats she lost to freaking donald trump she's not a motivator sorry she's not she's not her husband either she's uh <laughs> you'll hear you'll hear now paul worked for the clinton so you'll hear his response to, to me on that it's uh it's pretty good but as we are concerned about what's going on we're concerned about the midterms you got a lot of anxiety about those things because they're very serious issues in italian we call it agita you know the stuff gives me agita but what shouldn't give you agita should be finding great new looking blinds for your windows. That's right. That's why BlindsGalore.com is around. BlindsGalore.com was the first place to buy custom window treatments online. So they know what they're doing. Not only have they been in business for over 20 years, they've covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get the right blinds at the right price. They make it so easy. They're also a family-owned business. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products, but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box stores. BlindsGalore.com's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. But they have the industry's best guarantee. So if you don't like your custom blinds or your shades for any reason at all, they're the wrong color, you measured them wrong, you just don't like them, you can exchange it for a different style and another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy, you want to sleep in, or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know I, Tara Setmayer, sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. I'm so pleased to bring on my friend Paul Bagala this week as my guest. And some of you may know Paul. Uh, he's a fellow commentator of my, uh, with me at CNN. But he's most famous for being the partner with James Carville, who helped engineer Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 1992. He also served as a counselor to the president. He was one of Clinton's closest aides. He has consulted for political campaigns all across the country for Democrats and around the world, including advising politicians in Europe, Latin America, the Caribbean and Africa. He's also an affiliated professor of public policy at Georgetown University. He's taught at the University of Texas, which is his alma mater, and the University of Georgia. Um, oh, along with James Carville and GOP strategist Carl Rove, Paul was recently inducted into the American Association of Political Consultants Hall of Fame. Who knew that even existed? But 
Paul Begala is in it. So I am pleased to welcome my friend, Paul Begala, to Honestly Speaking. All right, well, I am happy to have Paul Begala, who is a legend in the political consulting world. And I have to say that um, my experience with, with Paul as a fellow CNN contributor has completely changed my whole opinion and attitude toward you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad to have you because I, I feel like you and I are buds now. And back when I was in college, I couldn't stand you. <laughs> you, you were probably right in that assessment. And I think I've just pulled the wool over your eyes lately at CNN. <laughs> no, this. so for those who don't know, I went to George Washington University from 1993 to 1998. That was the Clinton years. So when I came into GW as a wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, very zealous Republican, I was very upset with you Clinton people because you took out a dynasty in the bushes. And so I was, I was just very upset about it. And I thought you guys were audacious and you were full of yourselves because you pulled off a hell of a win with this no-name, you know, podunk governor from Arkansas <laughs> who came in and slayed the Republican dragon there in, in uh, George H.W. Bush. And you actually came to speak to, our, uh, to the college Democrats at GW. And I snuck into the event because I just oh. wanted to see you. <laughs> How and hear great. what you had to say. Yeah, this is a true story. And I can remember sitting there going, what a smug, arrogant SOB this guy is. They're not, we're not going to let the Clinton stand with this crap. I can, rem- I can remember all of that. I was so partisan. And here we are. It's funny how things turn full circle. Here we are. Well, and and I, I do, seriously, I was too smug to hear it. Now, you're right. When you win the White House, it's a big deal and it kind of goes to your head. Uh, and so I've watched several other teams come in. Uh, having uh, won that remarkable uh, uh, building, and they feel the same way. And so uh, in that sense, I'm in familiar company. But every, every time there's a new administration come in, that's what I always think. Oh, they're so smug. They're insufferable. They're, and my wife always says, uh, honey, do you remember you in 1993? <laughs> well, there's actually a funny story that um, that I read about you that my friend Lloyd Grove, who used to w- mm-hmm. uh, write for the Washington Post and writes for the Daily Beast now, he wrote a profile on you right after you guys won. And in that profile, he talks about how you wore this skull and bone silk tie (laughs) toward the end of the campaign, at the end of the Clinton campaign, because you wanted to remind yourself and everybody else that this was a take no prisoners approach and that you wanted to put the stake through the heart of Republicans. (laughs) Yeah, that was around. I do. I still have the tie. It's (laughs) it's, uh, my Halloween tie, my degueo. De Guayo was the, uh, uh, the Mexican death march, Santa Ana, the dictator in Mexico, uh, who my beloved Texans threw out. Uh, when he would march into a battle, when he wanted to signal no retreat, no surrender, no prisoners, no quarter, so total war, he would play that song, De Guayo. So uh, that's a terrible way to approach politics, and I, I'm not proud to have uh, felt that. But at the end of a campaign, as you well know, oh yeah. Particularly, we, we, we were pretty confident we were going to win. The polls all said that. And so what you do is you, you have to really ramp yourself up and your team up so that you don't become complacent. Because if you stall at the end, you'll lose. It's, it is like – I'm a big sports fan. In fact, in the, I remember in the closing days of that race – this is the best political advice I ever heard. We're in the last week or so, and Eddie Sutton was a legendary basketball coach, mm-hmm. wound up at Kentucky, won a lot of national championships. At that time, he was coaching at – Arkansas or had been at Arkansas. He's very good friends with Governor Clinton. He called and I wound up getting the message. 
And I wrote it down. He said, son, write this down just this way. You tell Bill, you're two points up with two minutes to go. Press, don't stall. Mm-hmm. And boy, I took that right to the governor. And that's that's very good advice. Now, I do regret that. I mean, here's now, this is a digression. Here's how the worm turns. Now, many years later, President George H.W. Bush is, is in uh, beloved retirement in Houston, where one of his closest advisors is my little brother, Chris. And Chris is terribly close to the Bush family. He's, of course, a Republican and a great guy and, a, and, and very close to the president, former President Bush. So I went to an event in Houston years ago when uh, George W. Bush was president, so the son of, this, of the man we defeated. And I see President and Mrs. Bush there, and I try to hide. So he sees me, and he comes <laughs> zooming over to me and says, Paul, I want you to know something. I call your brother Chris the good Begala. That's funny. And I, I laughed, and I said, well, Mr. President, you need to know – I call you the good Bush. (laughs) We both looked at Barbara and when she laughed, we knew it was okay. Right. That's right. It is. They do represent that family. I have to say, and I have posed every one of them. And if they have any more, I'll pose them, but they do represent an ethic of service uh, and, and sacrifice and selflessness and public spirited uh, uh, attitude. And also the ability to get beyond those uh, grievances. I mean, he, uh, president Bush senior reached out to president, elect and then President Clinton in a remarkable way. They're very close friends now. Mrs. Bush, God rest her soul, used to call Bill Clinton my fifth son. So, And that's all because the Bush that? family is so generous. They're well, just yes. Wonderful. And, you know, and it's so kind of you to say, and it, I think it's important for people to hear that because we're so tribal now and the, right. the idea of that level of bipartisanship seems like a foreign concept these days when that's actually how politics worked until I don't know, 2016 or so. Um, yeah. it's, it's just non-existent. I mean, when you see, when, when it becomes a big story, when, when a picture of Michelle Obama and George W. Bush are sharing a, you know, a cough drop at a funeral, right. that like, oh my goodness, look at this bipartisanship. Like, that shouldn't be a news story. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it saddens me. But, but, I, but I like to hear that. that. That's pretty funny because, you know, I look back and a lot of people – you know, we talk about the good old days and you're a little older than me, but I am 43. So just yeah, <laughs> not that much. But I mean, I am 43. So, you know, I remember the Reagan years and the Bush years. And I came to my political maturation during really the Clinton years. But even during those t- those times, you still had a certain amount of respect for your opponent. As ruthless as politics is, you, it just seems like we're missing that now. Absolutely. And the ability to get things done, even in, in a hyperpartisan environment. The, we had a hyperpartisan environment. You're right. When you were in college and I was working for President Clinton, you know, they impeached him. That's right. the most partisan thing you can do. And yet, even as – and I was working, of course, on the impeachment defense. Even as we were working through that, President – the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. And the president was insistent that we work with them as an equal branch of government and get things done. It was amazing, and we did. Um, and, and that – it was not easy. I, I, I was very – uh, bitter to tell you the truth and he wouldn't allow it you know he he mm-hmm. really was able and i remember at one point he sent me up to the hill to finish cutting some deal and i told him no so i'm not going up there i hate those guys <laughs> and he looked at me and he's like paulie i know you hate like hell they're running things on the hill my guess is they hate like hell we're running things up here now you get your ass up there and cut that deal <laughs> that's and a pretty good I, impression yeah i mean but that's that's the lesson is that look yeah i, I couldn't stand tom delay who was actually my congressman uh or or, or newt uh and yet they the were hammer. tom delay was uh, the hammer all of our paychecks were signed by the same taxpayers and right. and 
we did, uh, you know, I, I'm proud to say I'm actually now on the board of the Archer Center. Bill Archer, also from Texas, was yes. chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. I remember Bill um, Archer. Great Republican, great congressman. He was making deals with us even through impeachment to move the country forward. He got some of what he wanted. We got some of what we wanted. We each had to take some things we didn't want and we move the country forward. And that's, that's, that is missing today. It really is. We have the hyper-partisanship we had 20 years ago, but we don't have the ability to set that aside from time to time to get things done. Right, to govern, which is supposed right. to be what job description is. You're supposed to govern. Um, yes, and, and that's um, I'm glad that you brought that up because people look at the impeachment episode, and obviously I was on the other side, and I thought – he deserved it. But I look back now and I'll tell you what, I would take Bill Clinton back in half a second with all of his <laughs> well, I, indiscretions. My exactly, God. I, but I was watching footage today of President Reagan and I was getting misty eyed. He yeah. speaking out against bigotry and anti-Semitism. I saw the same clip. I oh, know. gosh. And it just and of course, I opposed it. He, I was in college when Reagan was president. I came up in the age of Reagan. He came to my school, the University of Texas. He had the biggest rally you ever saw in your life. And I was a student body president. My father, who loved Ronald Reagan, Called me up and said, son, I really hope you were there to welcome our president. And I said, dad, I was protesting. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. I'd give anything to bring the Gipper back. Are you oh, kidding? My goodness. Just one, <laughs> one, one iota of, of, you know, how do you think I feel as a Republican watching what's right. going on and, and hearing people try to make comparisons between Trump and Reagan? I'm like, are you out of your freaking minds? Oh, God. Anyway. But, um, yeah, that, that, those, those times during the 90s were, 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 Clinton understood how to govern and he was the consummate politician. I, I always gave Bill Clinton that credit. He accomplished things and made people feel a certain way that really connected. And that was part of the genius behind what you and James Carville were able to cultivate and, and show the American people about Bill Clinton. And, and but before we get to that, so mm -hmm. most people, well, some people, depending on how old they are, really don't know about the dynamic duo of, of Begala and Carville, or Carville <laughs> and Begala, if you talk to James Carville, right? You put his right. name first. How did you guys get connected? Because here you are, you know, you, by the way, I did not know you were born in New Jersey. How did I not know this the whole time we've been together on CNN? You know, I'm, I always brag about being a Jersey girl. What part of New Jersey? I was born in Montclair, New Jersey, which is where my parents, of course, are from. Yeah, it's a beautiful lived area. there. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's had a lot of cousins there, a lot of family. I've worked in New Jersey, but pretty. Uh, I was pretty young. We moved to Texas. My father sold pipes and drill bits in the oil field industry. It turns out there's just more oil in Texas than there is in New Jersey. So dad yes. got smart and moved down to Texas. And they're a lot nicer there. I love my I love my home <laughs> state, but we are we are no nonsense, man. I love Texas too because you guys have the same level of swagger, but you're nicer. <laughs> <laughs> I love Texas. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I'm from Bergen County, just a little further north of Montclair, but so, oh, still yeah. North Jersey. So no wonder we get along. That's great. Um, yeah. But um, so after college, you get into politics. Well, you were in politics when you were in college, too, running for student government and things. But how did you get connected with Mr. Carville? Well, my state senator in Austin was a guy named Lloyd Doggett, who today is a congressman from Austin. Uh, Lloyd uh, uh, allowed me foolishly to intern in his state senate office. It's one of the great things about going to the University of Texas is it's in Austin, which is the greatest place in the world. And also you can walk from campus to state capitol. And so I did. And I interned in this guy's office. As I graduated, he decided to make the jump from state senate to run for U.S. Senate. 1984, in the year of the Reagan landslide against <laughs> Phil Graham. 
Well, we, we, at the time, it was the worst defeat any Democrat had ever suffered in Texas history. That's how bad we got whipped. But our campaign manager was a guy named James Carville. And I still remember, I was the kid, you know, I traveled with the candidate, carried his bags, things like that. And I, I was sent to pick up this guy at the airport when they were interviewing him. And I, I thought he was the craziest, most profane, but most brilliant person I'd ever met. <laughs> and that sounds like she, most people from Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And uh, so we, we uh, you know, I sort of sat at his knee and learned a lot and we became great friends. And even though we got whipped, we decided to go into business. We formed this little business of Carvel and Begala and went on to lose and lose and lose <laughs> until finally we caught a few lucky breaks. And uh, Bob Casey Sr., the late governor, uh, uh, hired us in, in Pennsylvania in 1986 and he won. And pretty soon uh, we worked for Zell Miller in Georgia, mm -hmm. uh, who was just a terrific guy. And Zell was very close friends with Bill Clinton. So in 1991, Zell got elected in 90. 91, his buddy Bill Clinton comes to Atlanta, spends the night at the governor's mansion, and says, I'm going to run for president. And Zell says, I'm for you, and I'm going to move up my primary because I think the South should have a, a role earlier in this process. And kind of, by the way, you ought to talk to these boys that ran my campaign, James Carville, Paul Begala. Clinton said, I never heard of him. He said, well, maybe that's a good thing since we've lost like right. five out of six elections. He said, just do me a favor and talk to him. Then he called us and he said, Bill Clinton just left my house. He's going to run for president. You're going to work for him. That's how Zell was. <laughs> yeah, I had friends that worked for Zell Miller in the 90s. He was just terrific. And he, I, I owe uh, Zell so much, but particularly that, he, you know, Clinton took a flyer on us uh, as a leap of faith and uh, I think out of respect in part for his, uh, his buddy Zell Miller. So yeah. that's how we wound up with Clinton. And that's, you know, so we were an overnight success, like, you know, 10 years in the making. Right, right, right. And but but that's a hell of a success story at that point. You know, you go from losing to one of the, you know, greatest upsets in 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 uh, in uh, presidential politics, given that given what was going on at the time. I mean, no, you know, like I said, Bill Clinton was an obscure, you know, southern governor that people really hadn't heard of outside of Arkansas. And he emerged as, uh, uh, you know, as this this populist and I, part of the genius of what bill clinton did which i think is somewhat similar to what trump did you can correct me where i'm wrong on this is that he appealed to what you guys called the forgotten middle class right right it was james right. carville who famously said it's the economy stupid and we all i'm sure he probably said that in a much more profane way not in public <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> knowing carville but we all remember that and and those of us in politics and when we approach especially national level politics um, do you think that that Trump took a couple pages out of the Clinton playbook and uh, by appealing to that forgotten middle class in a way? And now, obviously, he, he did it in a slightly different way, but I'll let you explain the similarities and the differences. Yeah, I do. I, of course, Franklin Roosevelt famous run, famously ran saying, I'm for the forgotten man. Right. That was a long time ago, and we don't use that kind of sexist terminology. Um, so we sort of were echoing FDR, you know, scripture tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And that's certainly true. Uh, so we were building on Roosevelt. I, I, I don't know if it was conscious, but certainly Donald Trump was echoing, uh, Clinton when he said, uh, that, that he also was going to be for, for, for the forgotten man or woman or the forgotten middle class. Um, and it was a sense then that president Bush was a good man and an able man, but he was yesterday's man. He was a cold war president and the Berlin wall had come down. And we were in a terrible recession. And there was a sense that he was uh, appropriately focused on, for example, the, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, but seemed to not know what to do when factories were closing in America. 
Right. And it was that sense. And it wasn't it wasn't it, we were very careful not to ever demonize Bush because he'd been at 91 percent. That's right. A lot of people don't may not know that he literally was at 91 percent shortly after Desert Storm in 1991 and lost a year and a half later. <laughs> and so we kept calling it a gold watch strategy, like honor the old guy. I don't I'm sorry to be so uh, ageist, but, you know, honor the old guy. Give him a gold watch, but send him on his way because the times are different. Mm -hmm. That is that's where we were very different from Donald Trump. Donald Trump has one speed, which is demonized. And maybe that reflects our times today. But, uh, you know, we were able to to win without ever personally attacking President Bush. By the way, when his son beat my friend Ann Richards and still had a 60 percent approval rating, he, he hardly ever I don't think he ever personally attacked Ann. And it does show you can win. Uh, even against a, a, a popular incumbent, if you were able to uh, resonate with the times and with the folks. And there was a real sense the middle class had been left out, left behind in 1992. And Clinton spoke to that. I think today, for other reasons, there are a lot of people feeling left out, left behind. I think the tragedy of Donald Trump is he couldn't see, I, I think what Clinton would say, he couldn't see the connections between, you know, the, the kids protesting in Ferguson and the steelworkers laid off in Dayton. The truth is they've all been left out and left behind. And we have let down a lot of Americans. And, and I, I certainly include the Democratic Party in this, Republicans too. The elites have not been willing to see that pain and feel that pain and that people wanted to express it. In my party, 42% of us voted for Bernie. Right. And that's a, that's a primal scream. 45% of Republicans voted for Trump. That's how he got the nomination. So there's something going on that the elites were uh, deaf to, and 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 I, I, you know, people are they're going to be heard, <laughs> and and you you can't um, you can't deny that. I, I don't like the way that President Trump exploited it. I think it's been a con job. I mean, get into my problems with Trump, but there there is a legitimate grievance that a lot of Americans have, and it's expressing itself in both parties. Did you think that the reason why Bill Clinton? And even you were able to connect with that populist movement, which I think has a different definition of what that kind of populist movement was back then compared to what it is now, because you guys had more blue collar, humble roots so that you actually kind of almost you felt it. You felt what those middle class folks were going through because you'd lived it and you'd been there. I mean, I also read that you said that everything you learned in politics, you learned from working at Quartz Hardware Store when you were in high school and listening to kind of the, the water cooler talk in that hardware store, and that helped you to really connect with those kinds of voters. That's something, obviously, a sense of apathy, I mean, not apathy, empathy, that right. Trump just doesn't possess. I do think that. It's been a great gift growing up in a small town in Texas. I'm a Catholic and a faithful one, but the dominant church in my town was the Church of Christ, Protestant Evangelical. I used to go to their vacation Bible school. Mm -hmm. uh, not in a sociological experiment way, because all my buddies did. Mm -hmm. And so I went, and so I, so many liberals are so contemptuous of people of faith and particularly of evangelicals. And I think that's really stupid and tragic and prejudiced. Uh, and so, I mean, I was able to, to, you know, I grew up, most of the people I grew up with were very, very, very conservative and really good people. So it makes it impossible to demonize. And it also makes it easier to empathize if mm -hmm. you actually know and grow up with folks like that. Carville, you know, grew up in Carville, Louisiana, right? where, where they had the, the big employer in Carville, in addition to his father's general store, was the Gillis H. Long Center 
for the study of Hansen's disease, which back then was known as leprosy, and it was a leprosorium. So uh, in my town, we had Sugarland, we had a sugar mill and a prison, and that's about it. And so it, you, you had to, it, it was a gift, it was a blessing. And of course, Clinton grew up in Hot Springs. He was born right. in Hope, he grew up in Hot Springs. I, 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 got, I, I had an epiphany moment when I, my friend and mentor, Tim Russert, told me this story. He said, you know, he, he grew up, his father was a, a garbage man in Buffalo, and he went to John Carroll College in Cleveland, and he winds up working for Pat Moynihan, a Harvard professor. And he looks around in that Senate office, and he goes to Senator Moynihan after the first day and says, I got to go home. Everybody here went to Harvard. They went to Yale. I can't keep up. <laughs> and Moynihan said to him, Tim, what they know you can learn, but what you know they can never learn. Wasn't Moynihan just, uh, just full of wisdom? Just brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant. brilliant. So that taught me to embrace you know, we weren't yep. poor at all. We were very middle class. You know, I have no complaints. I had the best childhood a person could have. But part of what was great about it was that we were not in a, you know, cosmopolitan, you know, uh, urbane uh, area that, that I, I still, you know, hunt and fish and eat chicken fried steak. And that makes it impossible for me to hate Trump voters. You know, can't hate 63 million Americans and be right. successful in American politics. And we don't hate them. You know, right. it's, it's, it's uh, I think that's a misnomer. That is too often used when you when you disagree in this climate right. now that it's automatically hate. And that's a problem. I, I have that's a right. huge problem with that. You know, as a conservative Republican, it, it troubles me that my my conservative brethren have turned everything into. Well, then you hate us. You hate the president. You hate what? No, I have legitimate criticisms of the president. I didn't hate Bill Clinton. We didn't. I mean, hate is a very right. strong word. I didn't hate Obama. I strongly disagreed with their political beliefs and, and, and disagreed with the way in which they wanted the country to go. But we can still find some common ground and let's figure out a different way. But that, that seems to be some completely absent from, from what, what's happening today. But you it made is. it. It, 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 it is. No, I was gonna, I wanted to go back to a point that you made about about the conservative um, uh, the conservatism that you grew up around, because even some of the the the. Democrats you worked for were fairly conservative. I mean, oh, yeah. Governor Casey was probably one of the most conservative Democrats out there. I mean, from the Casey Supreme Court's case concerning abortion. So he was like pro-life, pro-gun, uh, pro-union. Do you think right. a Democrat like that could win, run and win in today's Democratic Party? Because it seems like it's going the way of the Ocasio-Cortez's and, and Bernie Sanders. Like, I, I don't know that, that Bob Casey would be be a, a, a Democrat in today's climate. Well, K Casey, I, I hate to, of course, speak for him, and he was just such a terrific man. And it was a different time. He was as pro-life as a person could be. He used to tell me, seriously tell me and mean it, that he was more pro-life than the Catholic Church. He supported no in his in his heart, his personal views where he would support no exceptions uh, for abortion unless a woman's life is at risk, mm -hmm. um, which which is then just self-defense uh, that that is untenable today in the Democratic Party in the main. That is to say, as a presidential candidate. So I do think that, for example, on abortion, the parties have uh, sorted themselves out to where the Democrats are the pro-choice party, the Republicans, are the pro-life party. Um, those economic issues where Casey was very progressive and very populist, um, he saw that all as of a piece. So even in the 80s, Bob Casey, the most pro-life guy you ever met, most faithful Catholic, was endorsed by the Philadelphia Gay News because he's pro-gay rights. 
that to him was part of being pro-life. He was very uh, supportive of funding WIC, Women, Infants, and Children uh, mm-hmm. Nutritional Supplements. Right. He Still saw that today. Right. He saw that as being uh, of a piece with his pro-life views. Um, and so, but the short answer is no. Honestly, no. That, that, <laughs> right. That I didn't you think can't, so. <laughs> you're not going to get a pro-life Democrat on the ticket, uh, in, in at least in, in my uh, estimation. Uh, nor are you going to get a pro-choice Republican. Well, we they, got Donald Trump. I mean, he lied about being pro-life. <laughs> I, you know, this guy, well, he took every point. he took every position on abortion until the and then and then he went all the way the other way and said that women should be punished if they have an abortion. Remember that? How, bub? I was right. like, oh, my God, this guy is just well, he's so... Trump is multiple choice. Yes. yes. <laughs> Not just pro-choice. <laughs> he's had every position, but he has you, you have to give him this. He has delivered for uh, the, 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 the pro-life movement. Two, uh, I think, implacable foes of Roe versus Wade. He, on he has. Yeah. Well, look, if he may be, he may be an immoral bastard, but he does know <laughs> he is, you know, without question. But he does know the, you know, who to placate, when and how. I mean, that's the that's the way a con man works. He knows what to do that's just right. to give him just enough to keep him on the hook. That's exactly right. Just yeah. what he's done that's to the wise. evangelicals. It is. And I, of course, I think it's a shame. Um, sure. I, I grew up with so many folks like that. I know so many having worked for Casey in, the, in, the, in that pro-life movement. And again, I, I may not agree with this or that position, but they're almost to a person really good people. And I do believe they've been conned. Uh, I, I, I think the political winds were blowing the other way. You're right. Donald Trump would be the most pro-choice politician in America. I don't, I don't think he's rooted in principle the way that like a President Reagan was. I mean, you always knew, and I was just a kid myself, but I mean, you always knew where Reagan was going to come out sure. because he had a clear worldview. You might like it, you might not like it, but the man had principles. And very few people have accused Donald Trump of having principles. Correct. Because he doesn't have any. Um, <laughs> so, no, no. And, and it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, me as the Republican, I'm, I'm a whole hell of a lot tougher right now in this conversation than you are on Donald Trump, <laughs> which is which is the irony of this whole thing, because you take it more personally when it's your own family. That's you know right. what I mean? Well, and and what, I just, what he has, oh. what he, I think what he's organized around is, um, and I think this is a, a really terrible thing to do to America. He's organized around uh, opposition. He's organized, I hate to say it, but he's organized around hate. Yes. So we're not just we were hyperpartisan in the 90s. We're hyperpartisan today, but now it's a negative partisanship. Uh, it's it's so it's not just I'm right, you're wrong. It's I'm good, you're evil, and you can't compromise with evil. And I I think that's no way to run a country. You can't. We have 300 languages in every world religion, and you know we have got to find ways to compromise. And you know I, I'm all for negative partisanship in the right context. So like if you ask any of my boys what time it is they'll tell you it's 4:40 and oh you sucks right <laughs> because we're a ut family texas that's family right. oklahoma's, oklahoma's the rival oklahoma's the rival that's right so it's not enough that texas wins that oklahoma has to lose but that's just fun and that's just sport this this president has transferred that into politics where everything is a blood sport and everyone who disagrees with me has to be evil bad or complicit in the kennedy assassination in the case of poor ted cruz's father you know, yeah, exactly. And and it's scorched earth. It's a scorched right. earth approach that has such an impact on so many people. If you want to behave that way when you're a reality show star, 
good for you. More power to you. I don't care. I can change the channel and not watch you if I don't want to. When you're the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, the 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 consequences of that approach are are so grave that I think we, we're seeing that play out every single day. And the fact that the, for me, my elected Republicans and those are the, who are in leadership and in media, g- giving him a pass and enabling him, knowing they know better, which is so frustrating. Those are folks that know better. Some of his followers, you know, look, they may not they may not be that sophisticated when it comes to political geopolitical politics and understanding those nuances fine but the people who know better shame on them well so what happens tara may I switch an interview you for a second <laughs> it's okay when not if when his approval drops it's not sky high now it's about 42 according to 538 the the, the aggregation that they do of all the polls right so his yeah, job yeah. approval is about 42 in gallup it's it's 40 it dropped four percent since last week Yes, everybody actually has them at 40. I take 538 because they also include a Rasmussen poll, which actually I don't have much faith in, that has right. them at 50. That's Trump's favorite poll. Yeah, it's not a very good poll, but, no. but whatever. Put him, at, put him generously at 42. I think you're right. He's probably at 40. Well, that's with 3.7% unemployment. Right. And a booming economy. So, of course, anybody would be if, – if, if we had a moderately well-trained chimp and 3.7% <laughs> unemployment, he'd be at 50. I mean, right. not well trained because I wouldn't want a chimp <laughs> smart enough to do Twitter. But but a, we already a, have a, one. Yes, but so so what <laughs> happens when not if God forbid nobody wants a recession? But you're not going to go four years without one. So when unemployment goes from three point seven to seven point three, does he go to twenty or does does his base just stick with him and say we love him no matter what? I think that the you're going to have that, that 30, 35% that will stick with him if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. Wow. I, it doesn't matter what happens because he'll turn around and say it was the globalist deep state conspiracy <laughs> right. against me to try to sink my presidency. You know this, Paul. You know that he, right. just, he, he finds every way to make it about him. Even the tragic... Um, the, the, the tragedies of the last week in Pittsburgh and with this, you know, thank God that no one no one was injured or, or killed in the mail bomber atta- mm-hmm. assassination attempts, for goodness sakes. And ha- somehow Trump is the victim. He's victimized by the media, who's the actual enemy of the people. It's insane. And there are people who support him, the enablers that are saying, that's right, Mr. President, right on. It's the it's it's the media's fault. It's the, uh, it's the world turned upside down. That's what concerns me is that the fact that he has been able to garner so much support by such a large group where he can actually get away with these things and continue to behave in ways that are despicable from the Oval Office. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, no one would be able to get away with a fraction of what of the, Donald Trump has done by the same people who support him now. I don't know what the answer is for those folks. I think it's the 10, 15 percent in the middle that finally will be the ones that say enough, which is actually a good segue into our discussion about the midterms. Um, So looking at the midterms, I remember back in 94 when Republicans swept into power, 60 plus seats, and it was the first time Republicans took Congress back in 40 years. Right. President Clinton saw that and said, oh, okay, he moderated. He came into the middle. He he found right. common ground. We had a great economy. Passed welfare reform, you know, crime bill, which we liked. But you know, later on, that it haunted Hillary Clinton. Actually, the, some of the results of that crime bill. But there were there were a lot of successes. We had the you know the internet boom. We had a lot going on. 
and it was because Clinton was able to work with Republicans. Now, with historically, the president in power loses, they lose seats, the party in power. But this time around, do you still think that there's going to be a blue wave? Because I see back and forth now because of the Kavanaugh hearings and things, that enthusiasm gap is tightened a little bit. I still personally think that the the Democrats are going to take the House, not the Senate, but the House. What do you think? I think you're right on all counts. A, A wave requires two things. It requires a high crest and a low trough. So you get amplitude. Well, Democrats have had a high crest ever since this man was sworn in. I mean, the day after he took the oath of office, we had three and a half million people on the streets in the largest mass protest in American history. So we, we're fired up and ready to go, as President Obama would say. Until the Kavanaugh hearing, we also had a low crest, a low, low, low trough. Uh, Republicans were not enthusiastic. They either didn't like their congressional wing of their party and they love Trump, or they were disenchanted with Trump and uh, sick of the tweets and the bombast and the hate. And so you, you, you had the makings of a 50, 60 seat Democratic gain, even with districts drawn primarily by Republican legislatures. I think Kavanaugh hearing did change that in that it lifted the trough. Yeah. Now you still, I still think there's a wave. It's just going to be less high. Now these, you know, so I think Democrats will take the house. Um, not as by as much as if, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings had not happened, but there is, I think some in the early votes, some one sign that I think we should really watch is young people participating. The the drop off in youth voting from presidential to non presidential year is colossal. Oh, that's right. But there's an there's a poll out to today, and we're speaking on on Monday, from the Harvard Institute of Politics that says turnout projection from under thirty voters is now forty percent. Well, that's a full ten points higher than I've ever seen it. It's phenomenal. If you start getting young people voting in disproportionate numbers, that's something the polling could easily miss in the same way that much of the state polling missed the surge that Trump had among high school educated white men. You could you could have a, a much even higher uh, crest than I anticipate if young people will actually turn out and vote. Do you do you think that that has to do with um, possibly the Parkland shooting that that yeah, really was something that caught the attention of millennials and in even high school students who are turning 18 or just turned 18 to say, I've got to do something. However you feel about the gun issue. I think Parkland was a, was a watershed moment for the, for the millennial vote. Absolutely. And what those young people have done with their pain, I've met a couple of them uh, and a couple of their parents, you know, I'm a parent of a high school kid and uh, to, to turn your pain into purpose is I think one of the more noble things you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't blame any of them if they just went and hid and licked their wounds. It's what sure. I'd do. I'd be hiding under the desk. But th- so I, I'm so moved by that. I think you're right. I think even more fundamentally, though, uh, President Trump is anathema to young people. This is nothing to build a party on. As I said, there I was, uh, you know, a college kid, and Ronald Reagan drew the biggest crowd on my campus, bigger than Matthew McConaughey could. <laughs> he was beloved by young people. Yeah. It, it's not just, you know, we're so used to because President Obama was so beloved by young people that in current times, we always think of young people as being Democrats. Well, in my day, all the young people loved Ronald Reagan. Because and Ronald Reagan was the greatest president of this, of, of, <laughs> of the last I still disagree years. with his policies, but <laughs> he, he, what he did was he took that Reagan gym. Now, all my, I'm 57. All my classmates are 57. They're still Reagan Republicans. Yeah. And they will be to, the, to when they're 77. Did they vote so, for Trump? You know, well, some of them split, actually. Mm. Some of them did. Some of them, for the first time in their life, 
have split because of Trump. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. And young people are developing a negative identification with the Republican Party that will outlast Trump, even if he serves for two terms. Uh, and this is a huge problem for the Republican Party. Sure it is. His favorable among young people is 24. That's insane. Yep. And that doesn't, and you know what it takes to change that kind of impression? Right. I mean, oh. those of us in this business understand how difficult right. it is to change that perception. Perception is reality. And now that as the Republican Party becomes the party, or is now, the party of Trumpism and what Trump represents, right. it's very difficult for those sane Republicans like myself to say, <laughs> no, that's not really who we are. Uh, apparently, that is who we are right now. And that's why I say I'm a conservative first, because those principles don't change. That's right. And, and uh, that, that's that's the problem is that, that, that Trump, you know, just like he brands all of these stupid hotels and casinos, he has branded your party. Yes. Um, and, right on the and, ass. And, <laughs> that thing, <laughs> take it from a Texan. That will stay. That will <laughs> stick. That will last. So let me. So since you're talking about Texas, um, Beto. Beto work. He's your, your your superstar guy, thirty eight million dollar man. He's still going to lose to Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, you know, look, it is still Texas, and he, it is more likely than not that Senator Cruz is reelected. But uh, if you look, as I have, in the last twenty four years, there have been one hundred and seventy statewide elections in Texas. Republicans have won one hundred and seventy of them. <laughs> So I'm spotting a trend. Yeah. Yeah. People who think that Texas is going blue anytime soon, I think they're just reaching, but given that. Now, I'm not saying the demographics but, aren't changing. Uh, and Beto is accelerating it, though. Is, so the, the best any Democrat has done in 24 years is 42%. Well, Beto now is at 45, 47. Yeah. He's knocking on the door. And that, I, that, I think that is accelerating a demographic uh, change in Texas. Uh, the combination of. You know, uh, Beto running a completely unconventional campaign, visiting all 254 counties, financing his campaign on small donations, right. no, and pack no money, corporate right? PACs, yeah. right? No PAC money, no lobbyists, uh, uh, all people powered. That transcends politics. In other words, it transcends whether you're for higher or lower taxes. And it's just a different kind of politics. I, I, this is not the last. I, 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 it's hard for him to win this election. It's not the last you'll hear from Beto O'Rourke. There will be a clamoring for him to run for president, even if he loses the could, Senate race. Or could it just be that, t that Ted Cruz is insufferable? <laughs> oh, my God. Keep it. <laughs> well, I, I, well, there are my concerns. joke on Ted Cruz is that we, sh we should never – and I actually – I hate when these people interrupt folks' dinner. I, it's, a, it's an awful, impolite thing to do. Uh, and, and particularly Ted Cruz has a right to go out at night and eat dinner because he can't walk the streets in the daylight because he has to sleep in a coffin. <laughs> just joking. Um, oh but, but yeah, he, he Cruz, um, I, I don't fully understand it. Maybe Republicans like you could explain it better. But even my Republican friends, what's, why does everybody hate Ted Cruz? I know the old joke is it saves time, but yeah. what's, why, why, why is he the one that all my Republican friends say they can't stand? Isn't there a billboard that says, uh, uh quoting, uh, who was it? Uh, uh, George Bush, I think George W saying that, that, that saying something about Ted, insulting Ted Cruz about how he couldn't stand them or something like that. <laughs> I mean, and you know, the Bushes are like the nicest people ever. Like, you know, when yeah. it comes, they're very classy. You know, they don't really do that. But, you know, every once in a while, they'll get a little j uh, jab in there. But look, I just think that as, as much as I appreciate Ted Cruz's conservative bona fides, and, you know, I think he'd be a great 
judge somewhere where we don't ever have to listen to him talk. Um, <laughs> I just think it's his it's his disposition. He comes across as very preachy. He lectures, and it just feels mm-hmm. phony. You know, when you ask him, "What did you know? What did you have for breakfast, Senator Cruz?" He goes on this like diatribe about, well. The founding fathers believed so strongly <laughs> in the importance and nutrition of breakfast because the crops were where we molded our. I mean, shut up! I just asked you what you had for breakfast. <laughs> Can you just answer like a normal person? Oh my god, you know, that's hilarious! So again, it goes back to perception is reality and how people kind of feel. How you know? Do you want to have a beer with this guy? No, nobody wants to have a beer with Ted right. Cruz. You know, so I, that's just my, that's just my my theory on that. Um, that's a great point. Well, you know, I I try. So um, just to, while I still have you for a couple more minutes, a couple of other races that um, that you see really that are really important. I'm looking at Florida, Florida gubernatorial race. What interesting yeah. dynamics there? I think Democrats were hoping for uh, a blue wave in Florida, but it looks like early voting isn't quite um, where Democrats would like it to be. Uh, what do you think about Florida? Right. Right. It, well, first off, interestingly, both parties have in the governor's race uh, yes. gone to their base for their nominee. You know, a lot of Democrats wanted Gwen Graham, who's the daughter of the legendary governor and senator. She's a congresswoman from the Republican part of the state in the north. She just met all the political consultants checklist. The voters had a different idea. They wanted Andrew Gillum, the young, charismatic mayor of Tallahassee. And I heard about him first, of course, from Bill Clinton, who's always spotting early talent. He called me a couple of years ago. He's campaigning down there. He's like, you got to meet this guy, Paulie. He's the best. He's the future. <laughs> um, and then Republicans, uh, again, turned away from Adam Putnam, who was the ag commissioner and much more conventional Republican, and took Ron DeSantis, who is as Trumpy as they get, literally was running ads, you know, it, it, to pretending he was reading his beautiful daughter bedtime stories about Donald Trump, which is creepy and beyond the wall. description. Yeah, and the wall. Right. He's ridiculous. So I, I, I don't know how that turns out is the honest answer, but so that, wait, Democrats... that sounds like to me, Paul, that you're being a little diplomatic about candidate selection matters. Ah, it does a <laughs> lot, but I've been, I've been blown away by Andrew Gillum. I, I've been, I've been so impressed. Uh, again, it will like better or work, although I think Gillum wins. I, I'll make a prediction there. I think Gillum pulls it out you do. because he is, boy, is he a talent. And this is what's been great about these midterms is that, um, you know, nothing grows in the shade. So you have this dominant two-term president, Barack Obama, and we're looking, looking for a successor. And the only ones we can see are the ones of his generation. Well, older than him, Hillary's significantly older, uh, which like Hillary, uh, Biden, John Kerry, these other great candidates, but who are all of that older generation. And now when they're not running, we're seeing this whole new crop of really remarkable young leaders emerge, Beto O'Rourke and Andrew Gillum at the forefront of them. And that's exciting. That's always good in politics is revivification. Uh, it, it gives you hope. Right. Well, with, um, I read an interesting article by uh, Daniel Dale, who, mm-hmm. who writes for the Star and the Toronto Star, I believe. And he, he also has the long-suffering task of fact-checking Donald Trump rallies in real time on Twitter. And I'm fascinated by it. I don't know how he hasn't like dropped dead yet from just the anxiety of having to do that every time Donald Trump goes to one of these rallies. But God bless him for doing that. But he wrote an article recently talking about um, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And how people who Democrats who voted for Trump are now, especially women, 
um, who said, well, I, you know, I just wasn't feeling Hillary. I just didn't like her. Right. She wasn't connecting with me. I wanted to give Trump a chance. And now they regret it. Do you think that those folks, because people don't, I don't know how many people realize how close the election actually was. It was about 70,000 votes between those three right. states that put Trump over in the Electoral College. Right. Um, do you think that that, de- that the Democrats are going to be able to win those folks back in large enough numbers, not only for the midterms, but going into 2020? Because that was that used to be the firewall. Right. That was the heart of the, of the blue wall. And let's watch on election night. Our buddy John King is going to stand there at the magic wall and the Great Lakes region, which, you know, pundits used to call the Rust Belt and my friend right. Sherrod Brown, the center from Ohio, bans that term. I prefer the Big 12 because I'm a sports fan. That Big 12 conference, you're right, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania combined went to Trump by a total of 77,447 votes. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm counting, <laughs> but that's not even a sellout at a Penn State game or Michigan game or Wisconsin game. No kidding. So the Democrats, uh, amazingly, are coming back in that Big 12 area. I would include Ohio, where they got beat badly. I'd even include Indiana, where I think Joe Donnelly's going to win. Uh, he's trailing by a point or two, but I wouldn't count him out. I think he's going to win. You're now going to look at a, a Midwest uh, 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 along, around those lakes where the Democrats hold governorships in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, um, it, it, that's going to be uh, a sea change, and that's going to have huge implications for the presidential election, uh, because it, it, what it will mean is, rather than demonize people for voting Donald Trump for Donald Trump, <laughs> the Democrats are getting smart. Instead of saying, "Oh, shut up, you're a racist," we're saying, "You're a good person who loves your country, and I know we let you down, but we're here now, and we hear you, and we're going to fight for you." You know, I always tell my kids that, that I've been married going on 30 years, be 30 years in a couple months. God bless you guys. Good. That's amazing. And the key to a long relationship are three little words. And it's not, I love you. It is, I hear you. Yes. And the Democrats were not hearing the voice of a lot of disenfranchised Americans. And I think if you look at what my friend Bob Casey Jr. in Pennsylvania is doing or Sherrod Brown in Ohio, uh, they're, they're listening and they're learning and they're adapting and they're going to win back a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump for the Democrats. That's the way you win in this game, not by demonizing, so, but by persuading. So not calling people a basket of deplorables? <laughs> it turns out – see, this is, we're getting very technical here, Tara, but your listeners should know if you tell people you hate them, they don't like it. <laughs> and they tend not to vote for you. So, so Paul, look, I know that you're close with the Clintons. I know you are, but I, I got to talk Hillary for a minute with you. So, you know, that was a huge mistake that she made. Also not going to Wisconsin, huge mistake. I right. know you know this. But right. at this point, do you really think that Hillary is helping or hurting? I think she's hurting. She needs to go away. You're not going to say well, that, 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 no, that harshly. But there's, there's no evidence that she's hurting. Well, There's none. Um, she She... You know, in fact, if you look at the market, and and I know you believe in free markets, she and her husband are so popular that people are like ordering tickets for a tour. No, her like they're Van Halen or something. Her husband Uh, is popular. Hillary ain't Bill. Yes, but she still got (laughs) 2.8 million more votes than Donald Trump in California. Well, no, but that's in America. In America, she was closer in Texas than any Democrat has been in 20 years. She did uh, really well in Texas. Uh, She did. She was closer in Texas than she was in Iowa. So I say, but I know I always you do. Will. I know you do. Uh, what about the people who say, um, "Listen, like those women who said, look, 
I couldn't cast a vote for Hillary. My vote was really not about Trump. I wasn't necessarily thrilled about him, but right. I couldn't stand right. her. And so now they're, but they're coming home and voting for their incumbent Democrats because right. it's not even a though Hillary's about, out just, there. It was That's her. right. Right. I think you ask him, how's that working out for you? Mm. That I understand that, that, that you left us and I understand we drove you away. We want you back. And good politicians in my party are going to them, including Debbie Stabenow in Michigan, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. Baldwin, um, and they're saying that. So I, I, you know me, I love Hillary. I, 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 if, if I could like carpool with her, I would. Um, I've known her 25 years and she's just like the best person I've ever known. Like literally, if you, if you were to ask who should raise the kids, you know, if my wife and I were gone. Man, she, if any of the public figures I know, she'd be at the top of my list. Uh, and I wouldn't say that about most politicians. Still the loyal Clinton knight, Mr. Bacala. <laughs> <laughs> so before we her. go, I got to I got to get a good Clinton Carville story. You got to tell us one of something memorable, something funny, because you're a great storyteller. Oh my gosh. And that's something that I that I really appreciate. And I appreciate you being so generous with your time, too. Whenever we're on set at CNN or, you know, we're on together, we see each other. You always have the most amazing little quips, stories, one-liners. <laughs> and I'm sure you are a wealth of those. So you've got to pick one now on the spot about Clinton or, or Clinton and Carville or something about the campaign and back in those glory days. Well, Carville is the most gifted, intuitive psychologist I've ever seen. He figured out, it's not that hard actually, but he figured out from the jump. Bill Clinton hired us. We had never even met Hillary, right? It was all about him. He was the candidate. And that's pretty typical. Although I've been in some campaigns where the spouse wants to interview you too, but she didn't, she was, you know, she, it was fine. So he hired us, we're working. And after two or three meetings, we he says, well, I know who's really running this show. Right. <laughs> and so we'd have these giant meetings, you know, Bill Clinton, and we'd have a cast of thousands It'd be in the basement of the governor's mansion in Little Rock. And Carville would always go and sit next to Hillary and he would scooch over uncomfortably close. And it's not a me too thing. <laughs> He'd get uncomfortably close. He'd put his arm around her and say, Hillary, you just tell me what you and I are agreeing on today, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and she loved it. There are two more unlike people in the world than James Carville and Hillary Clinton. Hillary's right. pretty buttoned up. James is pretty loose. But she just loved it. And they were uh, such an unlikely team. And yet that, he figured that out. I mean, it was he also just authentically likes her. But he figured out from the jump that if you wanted to move Bill, you sure better make sure that you were – you know, good with Hillary. And I, I thought that was a pretty wise insight. And I'm sure you've seen any politician you work for worth her salt or his salt. You got to make sure the spouse is on board too. But particularly in that, as, as the whole world has seen in that marriage, it's, it's a power couple. And he figured that out from the beginning. In fact, even, boy, this is terrible. When we, when we put the, the vice presidential ticket together, it was Al Gore and Tipper, who were just so like movie star handsome. And Except you didn't want Al Gore initially. I did not. I did not. <laughs> but I was wrong. Gore, because I thought he was just a, a duplicate of Clinton. No. And, and, and he was the same region. He was the same age. He was the same religion. He was the same ideology. And I said that to him. I said, you know, Governor, what do we get? And he said, Paulie, I might die. <laughs> oh my and God. I said, oh, my God. That's what I said. He right. said, he's the guy who can carry this best if I die. That's the question. So when we're doing this, and there's a moment at the governor's mansion where we're all coming together to announce this ticket. And oh my gosh, the, Alan Tipper Gore were terrific people and just really great looking. And you could see James taking it all in and he goes over again, sidles up next to Hillary, puts his arm around and says, I, I don't care what they say. You're a lot cuter than Tipper. 
Oh my god. That's what Carville said to Hillary? To Hillary Clinton. And she, she just laughed and hugged him. And she like... You gotta love James Carville, man. I, I saw great. him I saw him at Politicon um last weekend when I was in yeah. LA and he he's just I, I really wanted to get a chance to interview him, but he was all over the place. I couldn't grab him, but I, I would love the chance to just to chat with him. I just what, you know what a what an amazing political mind and just a hoot to be around. He's he's, I still I still talk to him every day. My boys call him Uncle James, and and you know we just couldn't be closer. He's every bit as close to me as my my own brothers. So, mm-hmm. I was out. My husband and I were coming back on Sunday, um, with bringing moms to the house because I like flowers, and there were some Tim Kaine <clears throat> volunteers canvassing the neighborhood. And we were outside and we, we saw them walk down our neighbor's driveway and I overheard them introduce themselves to our neighbors who were also outside and said, you know, they said, hey, um, we're from the Tim Kaine campaign and then I couldn't hear what else they said. And then they walked a couple minutes later back up the driveway and never acknowledged us. Ooh. At all. They didn't say hello. They didn't, nothing. And my husband and I kind of looked at each other and I said, how about that? So I took out my phone just to watch them for a minute to see if they were like, come back. (laughs) And we were outside. So I go ahead and I and I'm like, they never came back. So I took a quick recording on my phone and I said, hey, Tim Kaine, your campaign folks were out here and never engaged us. Were they presumptuous because we were people of color? (laughs) <laughs> that we were just wow. voting for them or what? I don't know, but that was not a good look. So I put it on Twitter. I put it on Twitter and to see if the, if the Kane campaign would get back to me because you'll be surprised and probably happy to, to know that I do plan on voting for Senator Kane this election. Wow. It'll be the first time I've ever cast a ballot for a Democrat in a, in a federal election in my entire adult life because I cannot under any circumstances, vote for Corey Stewart, who is a racist and an embarrassment as a Republican. I don't know what the Virginia Republican Party is doing, nominating people like this, but I can't be a part of that. Now, I will vote for Barbara Comstock, but I am not voting for Corey Stewart. I'm voting for Senator Kane this time. But the fact that his volunteers did not even engage us to say hello, I thought that that was awful. It is. That's very surprising. Um, you know, it, it, maybe they were just like heads in their uh, uh, iPhones looking at the next house or whatever. But yeah, it, it, the whole point, the, the fun part of politics is the person to person. In fact, uh, that's uh, probably like you. It's the first thing I ever did in politics was go door to door. And I'll, I'll do that ready. again uh, this weekend. And by the way, pro tip, bring dog biscuits. See, I am a dog person. Yes. And you bring dog biscuits and then the dog likes you, the dog likes you, the owner likes you. Maybe they'll even like your candidate then. Well, hey, whatever works, right? You got to. I, I do have in. a little. Uh, I have a little dad fanny pack, and I put the uh, the dog biscuits <laughs> of in there. You do. <laughs> and, and that's the key. But that that is actually really shocking. Um, that, and I don't know if I uh, I can kind of imagine why you might a person might do that. But they, yeah, they should. They got here's free voters right here. Well, that was my point, and you'd be yeah. surprised at the backlash I got on Twitter about huh. this. I mean, people went off on me saying oh don't you know about canvassing they have a list they probably knew who you were you your house was probably listed as republican so they didn't go there i said look let me tell you something right now i have canvassed i've lit dropped i've done all of that for many many campaigns since i was 18 years old i was taught
thought that you don't ever miss an opportunity to engage real live voters. Absolutely. I'm not talking about that we're like knocking on doors and we were inside and they skipped our house. I get the I get the whole like you have a list and you're trying to target certain voters. I, I understand how that works. We were freaking in our driveway. I overheard them actually comment about the mums that we had in our front yard. So if I could, if I was close enough to them to hear wow. them talk about that, there is no excuse. All they had to do was take five seconds and say, hey, how y'all doing? Can we count on your vote on, on November 6th? That's it. I'm not talking about giving like a big dissertation about, you know, this is why you should vote for Tim Kaine. Or, so I can't understand either they, they took, took for granted because we're people of color that we were voting for them anyway, which is, you know, part of the problem with Democrats and black folks now as it is. That's a whole other discussion. Or if they just didn't understand the importance of engaging live voters, just something as simple as, hey, can we count on your vote? Or just remember to vote November 6th. I mean, something. They didn't even say hello. Yeah, that's amazing. That's that's not good. Right. It, 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 I think Thank you very much. That's coming from no, a professional, but, folks. It, right. Maybe because they're coming up in an age where everything is based on a screen. But when you have a chance to engage a real voter, um, particularly, it's it's one of the thousand of Clinton's laws. I should write these down one day and publish a book. Should. One of them is Absolutely. people won't give you your vote. Their, people will not give you their vote unless you ask for their vote. Exactly. And he has trained more politics. I've, I've been with him and you, we're, we're at some event and there's like the county commissioner candidate and here she speaks and he'll pull him aside and say, hey, you forgot to say, please vote for me. I would appreciate your vote. He's like, that's a very sacred exchange. You have to directly ask them. And, and he's right. And that's what they should have done with you. They should have come up to you and your husband. Uh, although he's law enforcement, he's a little scary, could be intimidating. Oh, please. He was unloading but- moms. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but go up to you guys and say that. Like, you know, we we hope you we you will consider voting for our our friend Tim Kaine. I I just want I to still say, hope you will. I, I will. I'm not going <laughs> to hold it against Tim Kaine. I mean, my um, my vote is more of a protest vote, but that's okay. He's still going to get it. Um, it's not. I don't hold Tim Kaine accountable for that. But I did want to make the point that you've got to do better with your volunteers. For right. you know, it's either you know, if if it was presumption, that's no good either, because then it wasn't right. you just take it for granted. You don't even need to engage us. And if it was that they just were so stuck to a list that they didn't have enough common sense to know to engage a live voter, that's not good either, because then you're so myopic that you lose an opportunity. And you know, and if they knew who I was, then they know I'm a friendly Republican. And they, you know what I'm saying? If, even if they right. did, there's no way I don't think they did. I had no makeup on and a baseball cap. I highly doubt <laughs> they saw. They were like, oh yeah. No. <laughs> so I felt that there was no excuse. And Paul Begala, Democrat consultant, extra- campaign extraordinaire, agrees with me, everyone Absolutely. on Twitter. Absolutely. <laughs> 100% Twitter. <laughs> Thank you for that. I always leave on a uh, with a personal question because people like to get to know you. So <laughs> are you a dog or a cat person? Oh, dog all the way. And in fact, <laughs> big big uh, uh sloppy affectionate german shepherds that's what oh, i've always had all my shepherds life. are amazing my grandmother used to train shepherds in obedience training and field and rescue oh, and she was about five oh. foot two she was a tough wow. cookie yes because wow. my grandfather was a police officer so she oh. found that um you know to be uh, interesting to her so i grew up around shepherds my whole life great great dogs i just love them they are amazing um tennis or golf Tennis. I, I couldn't bear golf. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know there are people who enjoy it, but it just seems to me. I, I mean, I always say people ask me, are you a golfer? I say, no, I'm still sexually active. <laughs> because if I took up golf, be gone five hours on a Saturday, I'm sleeping on the sofa, man. <laughs> that, 
Oh my God. I don't even know what to say to that. Paul. All the golfers now are going to be mad at me, but it's true. And they know it. You can't be gone that long and still have a healthy marriage. That is, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, happy wife, happy life. I think it exactly. is, is, is the, is the, the lesson to be learned, not only in politics, but in sports, don't take up a sport that takes you away from your wife for eight hours in a day. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Paul, it's been such a pleasure. I, I love talking to you. I'm so glad we had a chance to do it. And uh, we'll see what happens with these midterms. Tara, thank you for having me on. And, and thank you for always being so kind and interesting and uh, courageous on these panels. It's very easy for me as a Democrat to say I don't like Trump. But when you speak truth to power, it's, it's really impressive. So I, I really just want to tell you in public, I admire you. Oh, I, that's very kind of you, Paul. Thank you so much. And, and I'm sorry that I thought you were a jerk back in the 90s. <laughs> I think you're probably right. <laughs> Paul Begala, everybody. Thank you so much for being on Honestly Speaking with me this week. Usually I end my Honestly Speaking episodes with a feel-good story of the week. But I felt compelled since we are in the final stretch of the midterm elections to really emphasize the importance of getting out there and voting. If you haven't gotten involved in a campaign in your local hometown or district, congressional or city council, senate, whatever it is, go out there, precinct walk, knock on doors, do something, Get or, or if you can't do that, bring five people with you to the polls. Voting is so important. This midterm election, there's a lot on the line. So... I was uh, speaking at the NAACP Providence chapter in Rhode Island over the weekend. I gave the keynote speech and I really focused on the importance of leaving a legacy, living a legacy and leaving one. And I put it in the context of getting involved. And there were awardees at this dinner. It was the Freedom Fund annual gala for the NAACP Providence chapter. And they had some absolutely amazing awardees, people who are just doing things in their community. Particularly one woman, her name was Diana Garland. Her daughter was gunned down at 19 years old, innocently killed. And she could have easily just lived life angry and given up, and she did not. In honor of her daughter's memory, she started a fund, the, uh, I'm sorry, a foundation called the Essence Foundation, where she mentors young women and is, is a stalwart in the community in, in honor of her daughter's legacy. Good for her. That's what we need to think about. It doesn't necessarily have to be out of tragedy, but we all have a little piece of our legacy that we leave behind or that we live while we're here. And if I can't, if, if I just can't implore folks enough the importance of getting involved, being an informed voter, and what your duty is, is your civic duty to make sure that people around you as well are also informed and get out there and vote and engage. You have to. You have to. Blood has been shed for our right to do that. Our constitutional rights give us the ability to do this, this freedom. Why do you think people walk 2,000 miles to come to this country. It's not just to work. It's because of what this country represents. So my feel-good story and message this week is vote, vote, vote. The theme of the NAACP dinner was defeat hate, vote. I agree with that. 
That's it for this edition of Honestly Speaking this week. Reach out to me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara or on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Tweet at me, ask me questions, tell me what you like about the show, what you don't like, what you want to see more of on the podcast. I'm very interactive on Twitter. So I encourage everyone, reach out. And thank you so much for your support of Honestly Speaking. Next week, the election, midterm election edition. So stay tuned.